preachers are weary, the singers are tired, the church as we know it is losing its fire, and some are discouraged from bearing the load, but we must determine to keep pressing on, cause if just one more soul were to walk down the aisle, it would be worth every struggle, it would be worth every mile. A lifetime of labor is still worth it all if it rescues just one more soul. So preachers keep preaching and singers go sing. And laymen keep sharing that Jesus is King. The angels have gathered surrounding the throne. And they'll start rejoicing for just one more soul. Cause if just one more soul were to walk down the aisle, it'd be worth every struggle. It would be worth every mile. A lifetime of labor is still worth it all if it rescues just one more soul. Cause if just one more soul were to walk down the aisle, it would be worth every struggle. It would be worth every mile. A lifetime of labor it's still worth it all if it rescues just one more soul. If it rescues just one more soul. If it rescues just one more soul. All right, Isaiah chapter 53, the book of Isaiah chapter 53, which is where we have been for the last, I think, about three weeks or so. We've been uh, getting ready and uh, preparing for Easter Sunday, which, man, remarkably, is just one week away. Can't believe how fast the time is flying by. Isaiah chapter 53, book of Isaiah chapter 53 Today we're going to go down to verse number 10. So Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 10. Once you find it, let's go ahead and stand in reverence to God's word this morning. And then we'll be seated. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse number 10. The Bible says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, and thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This morning we're going to deal with the suffering Messiah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of salvation that is offered to whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who 
has not been saved, anyone here who has yet to be born again. Lord God, our prayer this morning, and I know your desire this morning, is, Father God, that they would come, not only to a saving knowledge, but, Lord, that they would take the step necessary to be saved. Father, I pray that you would just be with the preaching of your word now. Lord, that you would allow me to be used as your mouthpiece. Father God, that your spirit would have liberty in our hearts, in our souls this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and be seated. In our preparation for Resurrection Sunday, Easter, we've camped in Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53 regarding the 24-plus statements or predictions Isaiah made about the Messiah. In our first session, we just considered the text as a whole. We looked at the impossibility of one man fulfilling five of these statements, or seven of these statements, or ten of these statements. We looked at the mathematical impossibility, but all 24 of these statements, and yet Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. In our second session, we looked at the statements that had to do with his insignificance. In Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse number 1, actually it starts in Isaiah chapter 52, verse number 13, where God the Father says, Behold my servant, uh, referring to the Messiah. In verses uh, uh, 2, verse number 2 of Isaiah chapter 53, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. And we looked at that, that how that the world would consider him to be insignificant. And it seems odd that the creator, ruler, king, and God of all creation would be considered insignificant while walking among his creation. But that's exactly what happened. Of course, we looked at that, and then we looked thirdly. The third week, we considered the silence of the Savior. Whereas he could have destroyed his enemies, even saying that I could send 12 legions of angels, but then the word of God would not be fulfilled. And so the Bible tells us that he was silent Even though they brought false witnesses against him, he remained silent. The Bible tells us that he did that because it was his final revelation. It was brought us total salvation. And of course, it will inevitably bring thorough vindication for our Savior. Fourthly, and last week, we looked at the substitutionary Messiah. The fact that he was like a lamb when he could have been like a lion. We considered the significance of the lamb, the fact that it's a symbol of substitution and Jesus was our substitute, the symbol of spotlessness and Jesus, of course, was sinless. He was without sin. The lamb is also the symbol of salvation and John declared, John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world in reference to Jesus Christ. We've spent much time on this subject simply because no event in man's history has had nor ever will have the impact on the world that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has had, unlike any other event in history. 
This is an event that had an impact long before it ever happened. As a matter of fact, the very text from which we are reading about Jesus was written some 700 years before Jesus was even born. You know, the old, all the uh, saints in, in the Old Testament would look forward to the death of Christ. All the saints who lived before that time would look to the future uh, life and death of the Messiah. They were constantly reminded of it by their animal sacrifices and their offerings. Now, over 2,000 years since the death of Messiah, New Testament saints look back on the death of the Messiah. When writing to the church in Corinth, Paul said, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My, the death of the Messiah, it means everything to us. When you read about the death of Jesus, it can become extremely disturbing. One of the things I'm thankful for when it comes to the Bible is that the Bible does not paint a rosy picture of anything where rosy pictures ought not be painted. When it comes to sin, the Bible calls sin what it is. And we've tried to, we've tried to uh, uh, do away with terms regarding sin today, and yet the Bible still calls sin, sin. We've tried to change what sin is today, but the Bible still calls sin, sin, and always will. By the way, this is the book we're going to be judged by when we stand before God, not the book written by some politician or the book written by some judge that goes and tries to reestablish or redefine what actually is wrong and what actually is right. My goodness, we live in a world of confusion But we don't have to if we would just take God's word and say, this is truth. You know, those enslaved today by the terms. And man, the interesting thing is when you try to abide by the terms that the world gives us, it just gets you in more trouble because those terms change daily. Because we find, well, we can't use this term anymore because this term goes against this term and and this goes against these people. And we're constantly having to rewrite and constantly having to change. God has never had to rewrite his Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Sin is still sin. Good is still good. Evil is still evil. And we're going to be judged by this. And so as we look back at the death of the Messiah... um, It can be disturbing because, as I said, God's word does not paint a rosy picture. God's word is very descriptive. I remember one Easter Sunday, this has been many years ago, but one Easter Sunday, I just took the Bible and I went through the descriptions of the Bible concerning Jesus' death. And afterwards, I had a lady come up to me and say that was totally inappropriate and not necessary. And of course... It is necessary. We need to know what Jesus did for us. We need to know the pains that he went through. And this morning, there are some more disturbing things. First of all, the fact that Jesus was betrayed by someone who was very close to him. That's disturbing. False witnesses were hired to try to convict him. That's disturbing. Though found innocent by the governor, he was sent to his death to appease the masses who cried out for his crucifixion. That's disturbing. 
It may go without saying that Jesus' death was like no other. But I want to give you three ways this morning that the Messiah's death differs from other deaths of the saints. You know, if you know Christ as your personal Savior, you're a saint uh, in the eyes of God. The Bible tells us that we become his righteousness when we uh, trust in the Lord, when we believe in him, when we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. When we are born again, God makes us sons of God, daughters of God, saints of God. And it's very comforting because there's some things that... uh, you and I no longer have to fear, although we still probably fear the prospect of death. We don't have to fear what happens after death because God promises us we are on our way to heaven. But the Messiah's death was different altogether. And I want to give you three ways in which the Messiah's death was different. Number one, the Messiah's death was unmerciful. The Messiah's death was without mercy. I am so thankful that in our darkest days, we can always call upon God for mercy, and God is always there. The Bible tells us that we can uh, come boldly before the throne of grace and obtain mercy in times of need. God will not leave us. God will not forsake us. If we feel forsaken in our times of need, if we, if we examine ourselves, usually it's because we have forsaken him. We've turned our backs on him. But God will not leave us. God will not forsake us. And God will not give us anything that we cannot handle. The Messiah's death, however, was unmerciful. You know, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 23, verse number 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Man, aren't you glad and aren't you thankful that even as we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, God's with us. That even as we go through that deepest, darkest hour in our life, which actually is death itself, his rod and his staff will comfort us. If you've ever seen the death of a saint, you know this to be so. There's just something that comes over a saint in which God brings them comfort and calls them home. But when it came to the Messiah, God was actually the source of the Messiah's death. Look at verse number uh, 10 once again. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 concerning the Messiah's suffering that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Bible says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Then shalt thou make his soul an offering for sin. God the Father was the source. In other words, Jesus received the commandment, Jesus received the order, and Jesus obeyed that order, and he did exactly what God the Father commanded him to do. Those orders came from God the Father. Jesus willingly became a servant, the Bible says. Even unto death, Jesus was a soldier. 
as he went to the cross, knowing what was going to happen, knowing that he would have to go at it alone. You know, there have been soldiers that have been sent who have had to go at it alone. Jesus was one of those. History records that it was the jealous Jews, the bloodthirsty Romans, and the spineless governor that sent Jesus to the cross. To be sure, they must bear the sin of their deed. The Jewish council that declared, His blood be on us and on our children, must now deal with the guilt of crucifying the guiltless Son of God. And by the way, that guilt has followed their children from generation to generation to generation. You wonder, why are the Jews, why have they gone through so much? Why are they the most persecuted people on earth? Well, because of this vow that they made, his blood be on us, his blood be on our children. Oh, they must bear the sin of their deed. And they have from generation to generation to generation. Those Roman soldiers must replay forever the sight of an innocent Messiah dying at their hands, especially if they never accepted Christ as their Savior and have been in hell for the last 2,000 years. It is replaying over and over and over again as they watched the Messiah die, as they pounded the nails into his feet and pounded the nails into his hands, as they ripped his garment off and as they gambled for that garment and made fun of him. They replay that over and over and over again. They must bear the sin of their deed. One of whom did announce at the end of it all, certainly this was a righteous man. And then, of course, there's the gutless governor, Pontius Pilate, who placed his hand in a basin of water. And he said, and I quote, I'm innocent to the blood of this just person. Oh, but he's not innocent. Whereas he could have prevented the death of Jesus Christ, he gave him over to be crucified. So for the last 2,000 plus years, Pilate has been trying to wash that blood off his hands unsuccessfully. Oh yes, they must bear the deed of their sin. But to be sure, God the Father put the Messiah to grief. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Notice the difference between the death of Jesus and the death of a saint. I want you to notice the peacefulness of Stephen as he, as he died in Acts chapter 7. And in verse number 55, the Bible tells us, matter of fact, Acts chapter 7 records, I believe, one of the greatest messages preached in the Bible, and it wasn't even preached by a preacher. It was preached by a layman, by a layperson. Stephen, a deacon, who, was, who uh, stood before the same Sanhedrin, most likely that Jesus stood before, and uh, was uh, accused of blasphemy. So he preached the Old Testament all the way up to and through Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse number 55, that as they took him out, and of course we know, as we learned this morning in Sunday school, 
uh, Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, Saul consented unto his death. That means he had the authority, and he said, go ahead, uh, kill away. And the Bible says that they dragged him out, and they began to stone him. But listen to Stephen's response in Acts chapter 7, verse number 55. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. It makes me wonder, did he feel any of those stones when he got to see the glory of God in his flesh? Paul said that... uh, uh, that that the, the hardships we go through here in this world can't even compare to the glory that we shall receive. And, and yet there is Stephen dying for his Savior, and yet he looks up into heaven, and God did not forsake him. He will not forsake us. God opened up. God opened up the curtain. God allowed Stephen to see something that most people don't get to see in their lifetime. Stephen looked up and there the clouds were rolled back and, the, and the, 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 the stars were rolled back and the moon was rolled back and everything was rolled back. It is as if God parted the Red Sea once again, only this time it was the heavens that we see so that he could look into the heavens we can't see. And there he saw the throne. And there he saw Jesus, not sitting, but standing, waiting to receive his martyr home. The Bible tells us that Stephen was so impressed by this, that in verse number 56 of Acts chapter 7, he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. They stoned Stephen, and listen to what was Stephen listen to what Stephen was doing. They stoned Stephen as he called upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down, and he cried with a loud voice, Lord. Lay not this into their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is an amazing testimony of a dying saint. Listen, fellow saints, that ought to be comforting. To know that God fulfills his promises. I'll not leave you. I'll not forsake you. Yea, though I uh, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The restfulness of the saints. The restfulness of Peter as he was being held to be executed. This is another great testimony. Peter wasn't executed, but he was supposed to be. In Acts chapter 12, the Bible tells us that they arrested Peter. And they arrested Peter for one reason and one reason only, because they had just killed James, and they saw how it pleased the Jewish leaders. So they arrested Peter, who was the loudest of the apostles, and said, man, if we can kill him. That will really please the Jewish leaders. Well, Peter was 
in jail and he was there for a weekend because after the weekend he was to be killed. He was to be executed. In Acts chapter 12, verse number 7, we see the description. I'm sorry, verse number 6. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. Listen, Christian, there's a good lesson to us. If Peter can sleep soundly when he was supposed to die the next day, it makes our problems seem pretty petty. And of course, I'm just as guilty as anyone of losing sleep over silly things. Silly things that I have no control over. Silly things only God can take care of. And yet, when we read about people who are as close to God as they ought to be, regardless of how hard things got, they were still able to sleep. And here's Peter in prison. Couldn't have been very comfortable. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us he was bound with two chains, sleeping between two soldiers. So you got a soldier on each side. He's bound to both of them. This guy was not going to escape. If there was ever a time when you'd have to say there's no way out of this, it was Peter while he was sleeping. However, Peter had been given a promise from Jesus that he'd die in his old age. Peter was not yet old. And so do you know what Peter's doing right now? He's resting on the promises of Jesus. We sing the song, standing on the promises of God my King. Through eternal ages, let his praises ring. Sometimes we're not standing on those promises. We ought to be sleeping on those promises. We ought to be resting on those promises. Uh, there ought not be any anxiety when it comes to those promises. So here we have a picture of Peter sleeping on the promises of Jesus, resting on those promises. As a matter of fact, he is sleeping so soundly, and you know the story. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 12, verse number 7, that the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. Now, most of us, if you turn the lights on, what do we do? We wake up. And what are you doing? Turn those lights off. Well, you know, I just have to believe, just because of some of the things that I've read in the Bible, that when the angel of the Lord provides a light that's a lot brighter than anything man can provide, yet look look at Peter's reaction. The light shined in the prison... And the angel smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. You read the rest of the story, you realize Peter didn't really wake up until he was outside of the prison when he came to himself. That's how soundly he was sleeping. And then he said, Wow, it wasn't a dream. It it really happened. Because God says, I'll not leave thee, nor forsake thee. Sleeping on the promises, resting on the promises, standing on the promises of God, our King. Peter's restfulness. Paul was not only relaxed, but also seemed somewhat excited at the prospect of death. 
in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 6, when Paul knows I'm going to be condemned. He knows that uh, uh, the time of my departure is at hand. Of course, we heard him talking about death prior to this, saying, I, I'm torn between two desires. One is to go to heaven, to, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but also to be here and minister to people. I'm torn between these two desires. But when it came time, and he knew, my departure is at hand. Look at what he says in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse number 6. I'm now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. In verse number 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. The reason for peace during the tragedy of these men, whether it be Stephen or Peter or Paul, or if you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs and all the martyrs through the ages, how they were able to sing while they were burning at the stake, how they were able to pray while they were being choked out. The reason for peace is because they were strengthened by God, His presence. God keeps his promise. Remember what the psalmist wrote, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Paul was strengthened by him. Peter was visited by him. Stephen was comforted by him. On the other hand, when you read about the death of the Messiah... There's no comfort. There's no relief. And there is no presence of God the Father. Jesus was punished by him. Getting back now to Isaiah chapter 4, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is why it is so vital that churches preach on and against sin. Because sin is what caused God the Father to punish God the Son. Because sin is so reprehensible in the eyes of God, regardless of what the sin is. We call it a little white lie. God says the wages of sin, one sin, the wages of one little white lie. The wages of sin is death. And it is why we should not sugarcoat sin. It is why churches should, should not stop preaching against sin. Oh, but pastor, it's so offensive. And boy, if you want your church to grow, we're not about the church growing. We're about people knowing what Jesus did for us. We're, no, we're, we're about understanding that sin is so reprehensible in the eyes of God that immediately death was the requirement. When Adam and Eve sinned, animals had to die in their stead to cover that sin. 
and it pointed right to the death of the Messiah, right to the death of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God was intended for man due to man's sin, but instead it was visited upon the Son. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was chastised for us. No wonder Jesus went through such anguish the night before his crucifixion. No wonder he would exclaim, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. I am not looking forward to this. I've never been separated from my Father. I am not looking forward to this at all. Is it any wonder that he sweat, as it were, drops of blood? The Christian God, uh, the, the, God proclaims, I will never leave thee or forsake thee to the Christian. While on the cross, Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer is clear, and Jesus knew the answer. He was just trying to show us what he was going through for us. The answer, because Jesus became sin for us. And therefore, God's wrath had to be poured upon his son because Jesus became the representation of all our sin. That's how reprehensible sin is. Without a full understanding, oh, the source of his death can be very disturbing. The Messiah's death was unmerciful. Not only did man have no mercy on Jesus, God the Father had no mercy on Jesus. And because Jesus went through that, you and I never will have to. The Messiah's death was unmerciful. But number two, I also want to point out to you that the Messiah's death was needful. Not only was it unmerciful, it was needful. God was not pleased with the destiny of man. In Romans chapter 5, verse number 12, the Bible says that death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And we know what happens then. The wages of sin is death. And God was not pleased with that. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse number 11, the prophet writes, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So God was not pleased with man's destiny. Man's destiny is punishment for his sin. God's wrath being poured out on man because man is a sinner, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God so loved the world, he wanted salvation for man. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to take the wrath of sin that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, this is one of those portions of Scripture that people want to avoid, but I'm here to tell you, we ought to be thankful for it. 
the scales of justice must be balanced. You know, God so loved the world, he wanted man to be saved. Justice, however, had tied God's hands. The scales of justice must be balanced. Thus, sin had to be paid for. This was the only way that God could have both the Son and sons. Is if the Son would die so that we could become sons and daughters. And that's why as many as believed in him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. It was not God's indifference toward his son. And many people will look at this and say, well, God the Father is just mean. He, uh, to, to, uh, he doesn't even love his son. No, it's not that at all. God loves the son. The son loves the father. By the way, they're both God. I know this gets, that part of it gets a little confusing. But God the father loves God the son and God the son loves God the father. And it wasn't that God the Father was indifferent toward God the Son. By, God, by the way, God the Son willingly laid down his life. The Bible tells us that. He willingly took that punishment. He willingly experienced the wrath of God the Father on him. But the death of Jesus was necessary to satisfy justice. Thus please a just God who required punishment and desired the salvation of the souls of men. It was not God's indifference toward his son that sent Jesus to the cross. It was instead his love for the world. And I think that's how we have to look at it. When a man sends his son off to war, he's not sending his son off to war because he doesn't love his son. He sends his son off to war Because he understands the duty. He loves the cause and or the country for which his son is fighting. It's not that he doesn't love his son. It's that he loves his country. And of course his hope that the country will be free and his son will come back. But he understands there's a chance. My son may not come back. My, during World War II, many parents sent their sons off to war, not because they didn't love their sons, but because they knew it was necessary. God the Father sent God the Son to war, not because he didn't love God the Son, but because he knew it was necessary. And aren't you thankful he did? Because Jesus won a great victory there on the cross. But understand this, it was a battle. And not only was it a battle, it was without mercy. And oftentimes, the enemy is unmerciful. It was without mercy, but it was necessary. The Messiah's death was unmerciful. The Messiah's death was needful. But the last thing I want you to see about the Messiah's death this morning is that it was joyful. It was joyful. The Bible tells us it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, look at this, he shall see his seed. By the way, the only way for that to happen is through a resurrection. 
He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. One of the blessings of living is seeing your seed. The Bible says he shall see his seed. As much as people complain about growing old, and we all do, there's some great joy in growing old, and that is seeing your grandkids. Maybe seeing your great-grandkids. In the case of my grandparents, seeing your great-great-grandkids. There's pleasure in seeing your seed. There's pleasure in watching them. Of course, the greatest pleasure comes from seeing them raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and watching your kids get saved and then watching them raise their kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and watching your grandkids come to know Christ as personal Savior. Of course, that's how Jesus would see his seed, watching them grow up. Death is the end of seeing your seed in this world. Oh, of course, we know there's eternity. Men have offspring by life. The Messiah had offspring through death. John chapter 1, verse number 12, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Revelation 5, 9 says, They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by, the, by thy blood, out of thy kindred and tongue and people and nation. He has redeemed a people through his blood through his death, through the blood that was shed. This is something for us to rejoice over. Oh, we don't rejoice that Jesus had to do it, but we rejoice that he did do it. Oh, we don't look at the pain he went through and, 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 and rejoice over that, but we rejoice that he was willing to go through that pain. He was willing to go through that hardship He shall see his seed, the Lord says. This is why it pleased him. Not only that, he shall prolong his days. Some people think that Jesus' earthly ministry ended with his death on the cross, but it didn't. Of course, we know he raised again. But he didn't just appear for a couple of days. The Bible said it was over a month long. Forty days. He prolonged his days. He continued to teach his apostles. As a matter of fact, Paul would say this, that at one time he was seen of above 500 people at once who saw him after his resurrection. That's quite a testimony. That's quite a witness that he, in fact, did raise from the dead. His days were prolonged. And he shall pleasingly reign. The Bible says that he shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The pleasure of Jehovah will prosper in the hands of Jesus. 
The day is coming when Jesus shall reign, thus prospering, and that will be pleasing to the Father. Right now he stands on the right, he sits on the right hand side of the throne of God. But there's a day, there's a crowning day, there's a coronation day where Jesus will take his rightful place where he's going to sit on the throne and that he is going to be known as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is coming a day, and you know, God the Father will be smiling. He will be pleased. All of this because of the pain and the agony That's why it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's why he put him to grief. That's why he made his soul an offering for sin. He will have subjects to rule over. His enemies will become his footstool. And he will have seed that will reign with him. Joint heirs together with Christ. That's us if we know Christ as our personal Savior. If you have been born again, you're in a royal family. You're a child of the King. However, as Jesus said, unless a man be be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? Let's have every head bowed. And every eye closed, with every head bowed and with every eye closed. His death truly was unmerciful, without mercy. If you know Christ as your Savior,